and welcome to We Are History, the Less Than Serious History Podcast. I am John O'Farrell. And I am Angela Barnes. Why did I say that like that? I'm very tired. Oh, Angela. <laughs> Angela. What time did you send me the notes for this podcast you, last I, night? I sent you the notes for these podcasts at quarter to four this morning. Quarter to four in the morning. And it's, it's like... now, what is it, 11 o'clock in the morning we're recording yeah. this. So oh. it's fair to say, John, it's been a very busy week and I'm a bit tired. Yes, like Which, an essay crisis. It's like it really was. first term at university. Oh, my God, I've got to get these notes in. I was just drinking Coca-Cola and Pro Plus all night. Remember Pro Plus? Oh, used no. to take to Little caffeine tablets we used to take to get essays done. Oh, don't no. do it, well, kids. It's well done. very bad for you. Yeah, don't do drugs, kids. That's Angela's <laughs> yeah. message. That's Angela's <laughs> message. Uh, well, well done for getting them done. You, uh, we, do, do, we do do this for pleasure, you know, Angela. It doesn't feel like it sometimes, John. I'll tell you, at three o'clock this morning, it didn't feel very pleasurable. Oh, but, um... You got it done. You got it done. <laughs> Uh, at least it's a jolly, jolly subject we're doing today. This is Angela's <laughs> choice of subject. So, of course, we're back in the 20th century in the Cold War. We are talking about Agent Sonia. So she's not the sort of agent who takes 15% of the <laughs> sweet FA we get for doing this podcast. <laughs> Completely different sort of agent. We're heading into the shadowy world of espionage. Angela, explain yes. who Agent Sonia is. John, that's right. We're back in the 20th century where I feel more comfortable. You know, all the kings and queens and that that we do. It's, yeah. it's great and it's interesting. But in my head, I sort of can't differentiate between talking about Richard III or Red Riding Hood. Do you know what I mean? It's all fairy tales. Right. Whereas I quite like a bit of history where... There's concrete. a living memory, you know, concrete sort of, bunkers. where there's concrete bunkers and, you know, it's not really a Cold War story, John. It's a bit before that. We are talking about a pretty prolific, I think it's fair to say, yeah. um, Soviet spy. Now, there's lots of Soviet spies we could have chosen to talk about. Um, and there's several reasons why I think Agent Sonia is really fascinating, why I wanted to, to do her. Um, firstly, you might notice by her name, John, and my use of the feminine pronouns, that Agent Sonia was a female lady spy. Oh, um, yeah, us. exactly. I, I know she she did her best. You know she did her best. No, come on, let's not do that. Um, and I because I think the stories of women in intelligence are often not told in quite the same way as those of men. Like there were lots yeah. of women working in intelligence. They were rarely to uh, Sonia's level. Uh, she became a colonel in the Red Army. You know, so it was rare that a woman in intelligence in East or yeah. West would reach those heights. But um, nobody nobody ever asked a male spy, John. How they juggle being a spy with being a father, do yes. they? No. You know, but we'll come on to yeah. that a bit more. Yeah, and of course, we're dealing in an age of uh, greater chauvinism than even today. Mm. Just when you said the way word "woman intelligence" there, I just remember my mum in the seventies saying that she was at a party and a man had said to her, "I think a woman can only be beautiful or intelligent; she can't be both." And my mum said, well. "I said, I said to him, so what? You're saying I'm either ugly or stupid?" Stupid. Yeah. <laughs> Exactly. Well, John, so, luckily I'm here to prove otherwise. Exactly. Exactly. Can't even say that with a straight face. But um, yeah, so can you imagine the in the you know in the thirties what it must have been like mm. to try and get uh, ahead in uh, the world of espionage as a woman? Uh, her sto story sort of stories only really surfaced properly, hasn't it? Thanks to a book by uh, Ben McIntyre, um, yes. which Angela's read. I haven't read it. I confess. But uh, he also wrote the book we used as our source material for Operation Mincemeat episode. So if you enjoyed that, you might well enjoy this one too. Uh, ben certainly knows how to tell a story. And uh, uh, yeah. he's one of those authors we keep coming back to, isn't he? 
He is. I really like the way he writes. He's really accessible writing about history and writes in a quite a sort of novelistic way, if that's a word. Um, yeah. So um, so I do buy the book. It's called Agent Sonia um, because there's absolutely no way in a million years I could get all the details of Ursula's insane life into one podcast episode. Absolutely. So I've sort of picked and chosen a, a sort of an outline of her life and a couple of the stories, you know, that sort of piqued my interest. But there's so much. It's such a dense life that she lives. So do... Do read it. I mean, and I think thing you're going to say, I mean, I'm going to steal it off you now, Angela, because your notes are in front of me and you are very tired. But just the <laughs> scale of her life, the span of her life, I think that's why mm. it's such an interesting subject. I mean, this isn't someone who changed the course of history, but she was a witness to so much. And I think it's a great sort of uh, a lens through which to view so much of 20th century history. Absolutely. I mean, you say she didn't change the course of history. There's there's a couple of, one place oh, in particular yeah. we'll come on to where she probably had quite a hand in it. Right. But yeah, she was born in 1907. So she was born, you know, before the Bolshevik Revolution and she was still alive to see the fall of Berlin Wall and the collapse of communism in Europe. So her story really maps out the path of communism itself. She was there for the whole thing, you know. Um, And it's also interesting because in his book, Ben McIntyre's been really careful not to defend or condemn her. You know, you find your feelings about her do move around because it's really, well, again, we'll come on to this, but it's hard with, 21st century when we know what happened in communism we know about Stalinist purges and everything else absolutely but you where know, is it you have it's to a... sort of put your mind back to that time we are a very lucky generation and that we can go oh well western democracy is best but if you are in the middle of the second world war on the eastern front and it's choose choice between Stalin and Hitler you know these are two very grim dictators who were doing terrible things to their own people and uh, it's no good going. Oh well, I wouldn't have. I would have criticised both of them. You know, uh, we we are in a very privileged position. Privilege, did yeah. you? To, yeah, and you it, had to sort of pick a side, the, really. And in the thirties, where the the West was being very um, weak in its standing up to Hitler, whereas the communists weren't. So people as moderate as Dennis Healy joined the Communist Party as the only organisation that was standing up to the rise of fascism. So I completely uh, empathise with those who chose to join the communists as the strongest bulwark against Nazism. Yeah, particularly, um, you know, we'll, we'll come on to this, but sort of in the 30s with the uh, Chamberlain's, you know, non-aggression pact and all of that. So yeah. they're, they're seeing the West go, well, they're not going to help us. Absolutely. You know, if you're if you're Jewish and in Germany at that time, quite, you know, it quite. seemed you're... quite an obvious choice, really, for a lot of people. Hello. And Tolly agrees. Tolly feels very strong about this. She's fucking... Actually, she, she's I've a actually red dog, John. The... <laughs> I've drawn the blind on our front door so that she can't see people walking past. But she sits at the top of the stairs, which we call Pride Rock at home. She just sits at the top of it on Pride Rock, barking at anyone who walks past. There we go. So, Sonia, who was she, Angela? Was she a worker rising up in class struggle? Was she an upper middle class intellectual? Was they... They tend to be one or the other, don't they, these, these yes, characters? Yes, they, they do. Well, she, she was very much the latter. So um, her name was Ursula Kaczynski. She was born in 1907 in Berlin to a family of very well-connected, secular Jewish intellectual leftists. Oh, dear. So oh dear. we're sort of upper yeah. middle class. She I'm was sorry, let's stop you there, Angela, but in the movie, yeah. in the movie, ah, oh, Berlin, this feels like a safe place for Jewish left-wing people. <laughs> cut, <laughs> Doesn't cut it? Cut to young Nazi handing out leaflets in the street outside. They'll never come to anything. <laughs> exactly <laughs> that. Exactly that. So uh, big family? 
big family. She was, uh, there were six children. She was the second. So she had yeah. an older brother and younger sisters. Uh, family friends included Einstein. So they were Love. very well connected. Uh, her father was a well-known, respected economist and her mother an artist. So they were pretty well to do, you know. And God. her brother, Jürgen, actually, her older brother, would actually go on to also be a Soviet spy in his own right, sometimes passing material to Ursula and he was quite a committed communist and um, it's quite Ben McIntyre has like a gentle dig at him throughout the book really because apparently he used to write these tedious books on the oh, sort really? of oh, no, nuts it's... and bolts of communism that no one ever read which is quite Ben McIntyre had to read that's what he so, <laughs> yeah. it's quite cool having Einstein as a family friend it's pretty like, cool isn't it yeah what time are you coming round well time is relative oh <laughs> god here we go again <laughs> um <laughs> Uh, so I suppose when she was born then, we're talking about the German Empire, Wilhelm yeah. II. Um, mm-hmm. So she's still a child when the First World War broke out. So she really yeah. saw the old Germany. Yeah. I mean, you know me, John, I'm obsessed with, with 20th century German history. And if it, I had my way, every single episode of Real History would reflect that. Um, Whereas only I, half of them do. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I just find it so fascinating that one country goes through such drastic regime change so many times in such yeah. a short space of time you know so at the beginning of the 20th century you've got the german empire yes. then there's world war one a very brief german republic followed by the weimar republic then the third reich you know then division Absolutely. capitalism and communism and eventually reunification all within a century it's you know i'm reading this novel you'd really enjoy at the moment angela it's by colm tobin oh yeah uh, and it's called the magician and it's a it's a fictional take on the writer uh, thomas mann Oh, yeah. uh, and it's about exactly what you're talking about. It's about him living through being sort of Germany's most fa- famous and celebrated writer in Munich with the workers rising after the First World War and then all the way through the rise of Nazism and him as a writer trying to sort of cope with all of that. So, yeah, maybe I should buy that for your for your birthday way off in November. Oh, I, I might get <laughs> the magician. Then, just in case. The, the, the magician, magician by Colm well, There's Turbin. another, um, oh, God, one of our... Uh, readers recommended uh, readers mm. one of our listeners <laughs> recommended yeah. although they all know how to read so you know they are readers as well um, recommended a book called The House by the Lake by Thomas Harding which has been on my reading list for ages but it's set in Berlin and the sort of strap line is one house five families a hundred years of history wow. so it's sort of one house going through that period yeah. so I haven't read it yet but it's that's next on my list so if you think um, about if I, th- if I look back at my childhood I go John O'Farrell was born into England in the 1960s when he was 10, he saw flared trousers come in. Then later, yeah, there was punk. Exactly. Then, then there was um, some slight changes in technology. And he was able to continue doing the sort of job he wanted to do all his life. The end. Yes. Like, well, mine would be even more tedious, Philip. He was born uh, in 1976. You know, Thatcher comes in in 79. And she basically lived under Tories apart from a brief blink of an eye. But our country both. wasn't invaded from both directions, <laughs> no, cut exactly. into, you know, fascism, mm. communism, you know, capitalism. Capitalism, just yeah. everything. Um, it was starting with imperialism, uh, yeah. you know, just the whole, the, the everything. Whole lot. So, so I do find it all fascinating. The Chinese um, say, may you live in boring times, which I think is a good slogan. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, but, but that doesn't make a very good podcast. So, no. um, so tell us more about Ursula then. So by the time she's 16, we're in the uh, Weimar Republic here, aren't we? It's a yeah. chaotic period between the wars. Reparations uh, for World War One have to be paid. Poverty everywhere. Economic yeah. disaster around the corner. Fascism and communism sort of on the rise. And it's like, oh, which way is this going to go? She's from a Jewish family. And she feels that communists are the only people standing up to the fascists, as we said. Yeah. 
Yeah, and like we said, it's very difficult with 21st century eyes to think about a time before people knew about Stalinist purges or other atrocities yeah. done in the name of communism. And after a brutal war, you've got brown shirts marching through your cities. Um, you know, it, it feels completely understandable that a young Jewish woman would be drawn towards the only ideology that she thinks going to tackle that poverty and horror that she's seeing all around her. Yes. And of course, uh, the thing about communism is that the purges and the persecution is not written into the philosophy. No, so no. with fascism, it's like, yes, we are prejudiced against Jews. And that is sort of part of it. I mean, it's about nationalism and racial purity, which is, you know, a uh, 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 deeply offensive to us. The idea of each according to his needs, you know, um, and from each according to their abilities, it seems like a very positive thing. It's only when people like yeah. Stalin or, you know, uh, Pol Pot get hold of it that you sort of go, no, I'm not sure this works too brilliantly. Anyway. It's almost like, John, that yeah. regardless of what your political doctrine is, the arseholes are always going to end up in charge of it, isn't it? Yes, That's yes, sort yes. of... <laughs> yeah. Including, yes. Yeah. <laughs> Including the British yeah, exactly. Conservative Party. Um, exactly. So, so um, she's 16 years old. And she goes on the May Day Parade in Berlin, um, a celebration of working class sort of. Uh, it's not all communists, was it? It's a lot of yeah. lot of communists wearing their red roses and carrying signs saying "Hands off Soviet Russia" and whistling the Internationale. <laughs> Sounds like yeah. a great day out, <laughs> doesn't it? But that's what it was. It was a sort of, you know, like I said, just the work, a celebration of the working classes, really, and kind of. But um, and she was having a great day. She's sixteen. She's made all these new friends that are politically ideologically the same as her um they nickname her whirl because uh, okay. she sort of strides and sings and dances and is like a little whirlwind probably um, sounds but, better in germany if i'm honest probably does uh but then there's suddenly there's this squeal of brakes and the police charge the parade and in the malay ursula 16 year old ursula uh, a policeman bears down upon her and with a smiling face beats her with a truncheon wow um, you know, that must so, be the only time in history that a policeman has attacked a demonstrator. Yeah, they, they can absolutely be trusted 100%. We've learned that recently. Uh, <laughs> but did, um, she, did she go home? Did she go home no, in tears? No, she didn't. She was obviously shocked and upset, but she continued with the demo in pain. And some of her you know, colleagues said, yes, that sort of thing's going to happen. That's what they do. And so that policeman, basically what he'd done there is just created a lifelong communist, you know, that, that beat the sort of um, conviction into her really uh, that what she was doing was right. When I was that age, a bit older now, I was about 18. I went on an anti-apartheid march and I was standing and there was a face-off outside the South African embassy and people threw the little bits of sticks from their socialist workers placards and stuff. And then the police drew their truncheons and charged at us and they started hitting everyone really hard with these truncheons and one of them raised his truncheon to me and I just went what are you doing <laughs> and, 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 with the and confidence he, that only a middle class white man and, could have and he stopped <laughs> he, and he didn't hit me he turned to a punk and hit him instead <laughs> and this punk was trying to climb up a statue and he was hitting his legs and I was like I was like for goodness sake, stop. What would your mother say if she I could know. see him now? But it genuinely was a, a revelatory moment of, oh, I'm, look, I'm middle class. You don't, I don't get hit <laughs> with hit me. <laughs> oh, yeah. Dear. So, but yes, but unfortunately that didn't work for a young Ursula in Germany in um, in the 1930s, whatever this was. Um yeah, so, um, did I mean, was her whole family, were they communists too? You said they were leftists. They, were they... they were. So her mother was really angry when she got home, actually, that she'd been out there sort of shouting in the streets with the communists. Um, uh, so, and her father did try to dissuade her from joining the communists. They were sympathisers with the cause. They were leftists, but, yeah. you know, they were essentially 
upper middle class family and as Ben McIntyre right he says the Kaczynskis might support the struggle of the working classes but that did not mean they wanted their daughter working with them (laughs) (laughs) it's like yeah yeah it's like yeah, the miners yeah. will never be defeated. Do you want to be a miner, John? Oh, goodness, no. Go to the media. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but, but from then on, Ursula herself is committed and she is, you know, grassroots committed. She joins the Communistische Jugendverband Deutschland, which oh, is the... Good pronunciation. Thank you very that, much. Those, those German conversation much. classes are paying Oh, yeah, ich spreche gern Deutsch. Oh, das ist gut. Das ist der Bleistift. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, so, I mean, does this phrase come up much in your in, in your German conversation classes? You well, know, it's the... funny because the person I do my German conversation classes with, she's about the same age as me, but she was born in uh, um, Rostock in East Germany. So wow. I quite, you know, enjoy listening about her yeah. youth as a young pioneer and having to learn Russian at oh. school and things like that. So anyway, however. She's um, 19. Yes. She's 19. She's, she graduates uh, to the grown-up Communist Party now in Germany who have yeah. a paramilitary wing and they're locked in battle with the Nazi brown shirts. And she's mm-hmm. she is given and shown how to use a pistol for the first time at 19. This is all a bit worrying, yeah. I think, as a parent. I'd be going, I'm not sure, darling. Can we get another hobby? Um, <laughs> she hides a pistol in her parents' attic, apparently. And so that she was all ready when the revolution comes. Absolutely. She meant business. She wasn't just, you know, she was absolutely ready for, for revolution. And during this period, when, so she, she's also, you know, a young teenage girl, essentially. Yeah, right. And um, so while being trained as a, a revolutionary, she meets a, a boy. Oh, and um, this yeah, is a love story. It is a love story. A little bit, John, a little bit. It's not, it is a, well, yeah, it's a love story that turns out much better for one of them than it does the other. Okay, okay. She meets a man called Rudy Hamburger, which is just a great name, isn't it? Isn't it? I don't Um, suppose anyone took the mickey out of his name. Maybe they were the family that invented the handy, hand sized snack. Maybe (laughs) they were. Maybe maybe that's where it gets its name from. He was an architect, so maybe, Ah, you know, that he was an architect on a small scale. (laughs) Designed a small bread and meat product. <laughs> anyway, he or does not. end up being the person I think I feel most sorry for in this whole story. And not just because of his name. Not just because of his name, no. So Rudy Hamburger is an architecture student in Berlin. Um, incredibly, you know, again from a very middle class. John's lost the plot. I'll keep That's it going, Hamburg. don't worry. Oh, uh, Mr. Hamburger. Not, this is so much <laughs> Very common name in Germany, obviously, meaning you are from Hamburg, Hamburg John. Yeah. yeah, and his friend, <laughs> Mr. Frankfurter. Yeah, exactly. Oh, God. Okay. So... <laughs> Yeah, at first, so he's a, he's a couple of years older than her. He's a university student. He's in his 20s. Um, but they fall in love. Uh, at, at first, though, she does struggle to commit to him. It's the first time, really, she has this sort of choice to make because right. while he is a sympathiser with the cause, he's very much yeah. a leftist, and again, from one of these sort of Jewish intellectual families, he refuses to join the communists. He reads Lenin and Engels, but he flatly refuses to join the activism. He feels like there's a lot of um, sort of bullishness within the com- uh, Communist Party and, you know, n- not enough intellectualism, I suppose, at that right. point in time. So he refuses to commit to her so, activism so for her, alongside it's love versus her. duty. It is, which is a conflict for her, a big conflict, because yeah, as we yeah. learn throughout this story, you know, her ideology wins over yeah all so, the time and that never really wavers so she goes off to america doesn't she and she uh, does. gets swept up in the american left yeah she reads daughter of earth by the radical american writer agnes smedley hangs yeah. out with prominent american communists 
I'd struggle to name any of those right now. But eventually she comes back because she misses Rudy and she realises that she can see past his refusal to commit to the cause. And she marries him in October 1929 when the capitalism collapses around their ears. Is this going to be the revolution? Is this where it's all going to go wrong? Pretty much. This could be where it all kicks off. So they are a young Jewish couple in love. uh, They're pretty broke and they're struggling. And it's 1929 and the rise of fascism bows on. Um, and eventually, uh, Rudy lands a job, but it's in Shanghai. He lands a job at Shanghai Municipal Council. It's like, yes. you don't see that down the job centre very often, do you, on those you cards? Don't. You don't. Well, what <laughs> job, Shanghai... Jobs in other areas. <laughs> what they were, basically, Shanghai Municipal Council. So, Shanghai, um, it, it's a British-American enclave in Shanghai. Right. And, um, and they're doing a lot of building at the time. So, um, right. he gets a job as an architect working for them so they head off to china blimey and it's the, the, the city is like a massive melting pot of exiles from all over the world at this point isn't it yeah soon absolutely. uh even more so with people fleeing the nazi regime and probably fleeing the uh, uh japanese uh attacks on other parts yeah, of china as well and white russians and yeah yeah Sounds so, like it should be a movie, this place. Great setting for a film, wouldn't it? It'd be like yeah. you know, uh, Casablanca or something. All the, all the refugees from all over the world. Anyway, yeah. uh, this large mercantile centre, lots of enclaves, people of different nationalities, and yeah. the birthplace of the Chinese Communist Party. Angel. It is. It is. So while this is all going on, you've got these people from all over the world. There's a building boom. It's all very... Yeah. There's also, amongst the Chinese population in Shanghai, there's crippling poverty. Um right. It's, so the Chinese Communist Party really rises up out of Shanghai. And at this time in the early 30s, it is being brutally repressed by Chiang Kai-shek, um, the, the nationalist leader's government. Yes. Uh, in 1927, a few years earlier, there'd been the Shanghai massacre that had taken place to try and rid the city of, of communists completely. Um, the purges continued. I've just noted my typos in this are terrible. I did do it at quarter That's, four in the morning. Yeah, um, the Bruges. The Bruges continued. The Bruges <laughs> of the communist. Jesus. I have to say, I knew nothing about this, Angela. They, it says in your notes, like 300,000 people were murdered. That's incredible. Murdered, yeah, absolutely. They call yeah. it. Some people call it the Chinese white terror, I think. It, it was, right. yeah pretty horrific time to be a, a communist in, in Shanghai. Um, yeah. And, you know, this is the sort of pre This is obviously what then goes on to uh, end with the revolution. Um, But at this point, yeah. So that's the Shanghai that they've arrived. Now, looking at your your notes here, Angela, you said Mm -hmm. that not long after being Shanghai, Ursula falls pregnant. (laughs) It's like, like, it's like, She's not married and it's out of wedlock. And <laughs> She is married. They oh, okay. are married. Falls pregnant feels sort of slightly judgmental, if you don't mind me saying so. Oh, I don't <laughs> know. I think you it, fall pregnant, don't you? You become you... pregnant. You fall pregnant like if you're a sinning, unmarried teenager, don't I you? I don't think that's true. No, I think you so. said I fell pregnant. You fell right. Okay. Well, 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 I don't know. Well, well, we'll, we'll that's a matter for semantics, guys. Well, let's, 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 we'll have our... Listening to this podcast. Oh, she's, she's, she's with child. She's fallen pregnant. <laughs> She's got a bun in the oven, John. She's got a, okay, she's up the duff. <laughs> um, so it's 1931 and she's happily blessed with child. <laughs> she John is. I mean, you say that, but it wasn't an ideal time to be having, you know, I'm not sure that they were no. like, you know, oh, wonderful. I mean, I think she, well, I say that, I think she was keen to be a mother and she was pleased, but it was still, you know, difficult yeah, the, time. The whole, the whole world is hurtling towards war. It's not the ideal time to sort of yeah. go to mother care, is it really? Yeah. Exactly. Now, while she's in Shanghai, she is meeting 
communists, right? She's obviously seeking right. them out and meeting them. And um, one of the communists she meets, we've mentioned before, the author Agnes Smedley, who wrote Daughter of Earth, which she'd read right. in America. And, it was, and Agnes Smedley was... Um, yeah, this American radical writer, massively interested in life. Maybe we'll do an episode on her one day. Uh, but by this time, Smedley is a Soviet agent already and she effectively recruits Ursula and she hands her over to a man called Richard Sorge. Now, Richard Sorge is a very famous um, uh, spy. Uh, yep. His code name was Agent Ramsey. And Ian Fleming himself uh, described Sorge as being the most formidable spy in history, which I think, wow. John, makes it even more tragic that he had such a rubbish code name. That's funny. I mean, Ramsey. <laughs> Ramsey, I don't know. Yeah, it's not great, is it? I have to say, Ian Fleming sort of pops up in just about every podcast it we does. do, doesn't it? It's it like, does. and now, and now, and then in Eurovision in 1956, the British entry was by Ian Fleming. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, <laughs> oh dear. Yeah, yeah so, early 20th century history, he was yeah. right in there, wasn't he? He was He's right he got a walk on part. He Walk really on part did. in every bit. But Ursula ends up having an affair with Sorge. He, by all accounts, was a very dashing and charismatic man, which I think a lot of spy, male spies are because that, you know, allows them to get away with quite a lot. Um, and so she has an affair with him and he sort of lures her deeper into the world of espionage. So it's autumn 1931. And so yeah. Ursula gets a code name, code named Sonia, which I say is a better code name than Ramsey, if I'm honest. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And she's sent to a seven-month training camp in Moscow, the Sparrow School. So, mm. so okay, it's a nice name. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, um, uh, the baby's sent away to stay with Rudy's parents in Czechoslovakia, and they won't let her bring him in because they're worried he might pick up his first words in Russian and blurt them out when they go back in Shanghai. Which, to be fair, would be a bit of a giveaway. Yeah, um, exactly. So she's, you know, she's a new mother and she's sent her baby she's, away. She's to pretty committed then, isn't she? She is very, very committed. And she's gone to Moscow and she's trained in radio technician work, uh, how to build a radio and how to make bombs. They're her two areas of expertise. Okay. expertise. She's so, an expert bomb maker and an expert radio technician. She's able to build radios from scratch. And blow uh, them up. From scratch and, and blow them up. <laughs> so from there then, Moscow decide that she is to be placed in Manchuria. Now at this time, the Manchuria is northeast, isn't it, China? Yes, that's right. Um, Wasn't it when the Japanese uh, invading already at this point? Exactly. Well, at this point, it's occupied by right. Japan. And again, this brutal repression of the communist partisans by the Japanese. So along with fellow military intelligence officer Johan Patra, remember that name? Yeah. Uh, whose code name was Ernst. They go. They are sent together to Manchuria um, to help the communists against the Japanese occupation by blowing up railways and other partisan activities. I think a little word I'd say here as well that you know, we'll just remember Rudy. He's just waved his wife ah, up yes, to Moscow, yes, yes. then off to Manchuria with some strange bloke, you know. But he knows that she's committed to her cause and he supports her regardless of his own feelings about it. Wow. So. Um, there's a lovely story that while she was in Manchuria that she tells that I think really highlights something about her as an agent. So she would go shopping for bomb making ingredients. Now, obviously, if you're making a bomb, you don't buy everything from as one you shop. You know, it's a bit obvious. Um, and one of the key ingredients yeah. for bomb making, John, as we know, is ammonium nitrate, right? which is just a fertilizer. But so she would stop at different places so as not to raise suspicion when she's shopping yeah. for materials. And in one shop she goes to, she tries to buy 10 pounds of ammonium nitrate, but her language skills let her down and she ends up getting a hundred weight back. <laughs> oh God. 
of ammonium nitrate. And she just sort of puts it in her pram and puts the baby on top of it. It's quite an quite image, an, that, it isn't it? It is, isn't it? Just a blur, all the uh, yeah. stuff. The health and safety, you know, people. Yeah. Like, so when you're out with baby, it's always good to have a hundred weight of ammonium nitrate <laughs> piled on top. Yeah. I suppose it also reveals how motherhood was a, 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 a thing that gave her her greatest cover. Uh, yeah. When we're talking about that um, lady detectives in the Maud West episode, mm. being a woman made you a little bit invisible uh, and being a harassed mother with a pram, probably even more so. They're not Absolutely. Gonna think, it doesn't look like the James Bond image, doesn't it? A woman pushing Exactly. And so no, that's why, you know, she she sort of got away with so much, really. And But it's something that Ursa really wrestled with. And there's something we said earlier, because she did go on to have more children, which we'll come to. But her whole life, she spent questioning whether she should have put her children in the mortal danger that she did. But her commitment to the cause was so solid that yeah. she felt that that was greater than her. And but I think we, a, we yeah, sort of... today we don't really, we struggle with that a bit, don't we? We, we sort do. of think of family first, don't we? Absolutely. We, we find it horrific that anyone could put a cause before their own child and that it's that sort of against human nature. But actually, I think that's a very Western way of thinking. We're a society right. that we've elevated the individual so much Yeah. Um, that I think that's how we're also struggling at the moment to understand the mindset of what's happening in Ukraine right now. Yeah. Um, you know, because it feels like certainly in Russia and, you know, former, former Soviet states, the mindset is very different to ours. It yes. is, for better or for worse, you act for your society as a whole. Yeah. And, you know. So all those people in Ukraine, you see them, uh, the, you know, the children with the mothers get out and, you know, young sons stay and fight. All men stay and fight and families split yeah. up. And I, I, if I'm hand on heart honest, I'd be thinking, God, do I really want to lay down my life for my country or do I want to get out and live the rest of my life? Because, yeah. you know, just stand there and face the tanks. And then Jackie goes, oh, you'll be right. Uh, you'll be allowed to go because you're old. Oh, yes. <laughs> it's like, no, look, but... it's under 60s. They have to stay and fight. Yeah, John, not for much longer. You're not. Yeah, yeah. only for another couple of weeks, isn't it, John? Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. yeah. But, but it is that sort of, I do, yeah, I think there is a difference between mindsets of Eastern, not, you know, it's not that black and white, obviously, isn't it? No, and it's but not I think that, it's, it's, it's a big generalisation, but, uh, you know, that, that there were, it wasn't just Ursula, there were a lot of people at that time putting their own personal safety and that of their own families yeah. secondary to the ideology that they believed was so important. I think it um, also, I mean, it's also was uh, um, the mindset of sort of uh, Churchillian sort of resistance to Hitler versus Vichy France, you know, mm. let in the Nazis and live or die on the beaches or on the landing grounds, um, but your country will sort of re-emerge. It's a very... Mm deep sort of philosophical quandary really about mm. you know which which these very very difficult times uh put ordinary people under tremendous pressure it's a pressure we've never had to That's face it. yeah maybe it's so much an east-west divide as a divide of the time you know because yeah. we've lived for so long through such peaceful times it's allowed us to yeah be more concerned with the individual than society as a whole because we haven't had to worry about it quite so much yeah talk about, anyway. can about cancelled comedians i mean <laughs> Zelensky, yeah, yeah. Is, Zelensky is definitely a cancelled comedian yeah yeah <laughs> and and as i said earlier as well there's the, that gender double standard here you know she yeah. wrestled with this her whole life worried about that she'd been a bad mother and i do wonder how many male spies Absolutely. you know have wrestled their whole lives wondering whether that despite their successes they'd been a bad father you know i think it's seen as much more acceptable for a father to be absent for the greater good than it is for a mother Absol absolutely yeah. certainly at that time certainly and probably true today as well of course um yeah. so while she was in china uh the regime that she thought was so wonderful was uh behaving you know the russian regime she thought was so yeah. wonderful 
was behaving in the most barbaric way with Stalin's purges. And uh, many of the people that Ursula knew through espionage would be victims of Stalin. But like a lot of communists of the area, they, they, they later reconciled sticking to their beliefs by saying it was the ideology they fought for, not Stalin himself. It must must have probably taken some mental gymnastics to ignore what was going on completely. Although mm. so much rumour and counter-rumour and, mm. you know, was this propaganda being put out? Lots of British communists sort of continued to defend Stalin right until right after the war. You know, George yeah. Orwell couldn't get Animal Farm published in the 40s, late 40s, because it was so anti-Russian. Uh, so it's only very late that we understood about how bad Stalin was. So the communists, then, the communists in the 30s can't be blamed for not knowing that, I don't think. No, exactly. And it's not, you know, they simply didn't have access to information in the way that we have now as well. Yeah, you know, you didn't yeah. have television. You didn't have, certainly didn't have the internet. Didn't but you didn't, didn't no. have, you know, so you, what you were told, half of it you took with a pinch of salt anyway, yeah. or, you know, you wondered whether the sources were propaganda or, you, yeah. you know, it was very difficult to get any accurate information coming out of anywhere. So, you know, again, we look back and go, how could she stick to those beliefs when all these awful atrocities were going on? Well, she wouldn't have known that until yeah, much or, later. Or would have questioned the rumours. Or would have know, questioned as, as propaganda. the propaganda. Yeah. Absolutely. So um, in the meantime, her immediate family in Berlin have fled Germany. Obviously, we're in the 30s now. Um, they've left their homes and they've all settled in Britain. Um, so Jürgen and his wife came to Britain and then her mother and father and the rest of the daughters came to Britain. Um, eventually... Um, her sisters end up marrying British men and they settle here uh, for good. And the whole family, wow. you know, does eventually become involved in Ursula's network a bit. Well, again, we'll come on to it. Um, passing of information. They don't join the communists. They're not, you know, agents as such. But, well, her brother is, but um, and her father sort of. It's complicated. But yeah. anyway, back now to 1935. And Ursula and Johann Patra, uh, who had been in Manchuria, suddenly have to leave. Uh, their cover gets compromised and she, Ursula, is moved to Beijing. Wow. And during the time she's been away, her husband, Rudy, has been moving more towards the cause. And his uh, faith in communist ideology has grown because he visited his wife in Manchuria to deliver radio parts. And seeing what the Japanese have been doing, the militaristic fascist, I suppose, Japanese government, Ursula informs her Moscow handlers that he doesn't want to remain uh, politically inactive anymore. And a couple are quickly removed from Shanghai as their network there's compromised, like you said. And um, it's decided they'll go to Poland via Moscow, where Rudy will officially become a Soviet agent himself. So this That's is right. this is like there weren't Ryanair flights here. Every getting everywhere was really hard. And one minute they're in Shanghai, then they're Manchuria, then they're in you know. It is it's crazy to think oh they popped. It's like no, that would have involved a voyage. Yeah, uh, yeah. quite some time on a ship. Yeah, it was quite an undertaking. All of this. Yeah, there might have been an element with Rudy if you can't beat him, join him. Um, right. I think you know she's been sent off to these countries with these strange men. I suppose he eventually had to go. Well, either I also commit to this or I'm going to lose my wife you know right um, but, but having said that I think he did genuinely you know he was also yeah um, a, a sort of more active towards the cause because of what was happening in Europe and, and across the world um you know which I yeah. think if you were yeah. wavering yeah, about decide, communism, which side you're on it, it may well push you they get to Poland and there's a slightly added complication John because uh Ursula is pregnant and the baby isn't Rudy's it's not your baby. <laughs> Makes sense to do that because I suppose in a way they very much are EastEnders. Oh, very um, good, very good. 
<laughs> Let's take a break while you repair your aerial, John. I'm going to nip out for some ammonium nitrate and we'll be back in a bit. Hello and welcome back to We Are History, where Angela is teaching me all about Soviet spy of the 20th century, Agent Sonia. Yes, Agent Sonia, also known as Ursula, and uh, poor Rudy, her husband. I've Rudy got to know, I just, I just think of him as poor Rudy in everything now because it just, oh, you'll see why. But um, I mean, already you can see why, but it doesn't get any better for poor Rudy. Uh, so we're now in Warsaw. Um, we were in Poland. They they moved between Warsaw and uh, Danzig, I think, or okay. Gdansk as it is now, yeah. um, wherever Moscow placed them. Um, yeah. And in Poland, Ursula gives birth to Johann Patra's baby daughter, which she calls Janina or Nina, Nina or Janina, presumably, or Nina. Um, and they stay in Poland for a couple of years. They're sort of, you know, sending, receiving messages, doing whatever they're doing for uh, the Soviets at that time. Um, and unbeknown to her during this time, Ursula is awarded the Order of the Red Banner for her oh. espionage work in China, which she'd done in China, which means she now holds the rank of colonel in the Soviet military, which is quite something for a young wife and mother. Order is, sounds better than Order of the British Empire, doesn't it? Order of the Red Banner. Red Banner, yeah. I'd have, I'd have one of those if they ever offered me anything. They said, would you like to be a <laughs> member of the British Empire? Could I have the Order of the, Red, of the Banner, Red Banner, please? please? Oh, yeah, see how quickly you're uh, yeah, put you on a plane out of here. That way. <laughs> yeah, I exactly. don't need that anyway, because I am actually, I have already got an award from Sealand, for which I thank you, you again, You have Lord, Lord Sealand, Lord, Lord of Sealand. Lord of Sealand. Yeah, so, yes, absolutely. I've already That's got all that. the only honour you need, John. Uh, so uh, Ursula's next posting, she's off again, Switzerland, yeah. 1938, neutral, of course, in World War II, which is, you know, on its way, mm. but riddled with spies. And, of course, you've got um, Maria von Trapp coming over, singing <laughs> Sound of Music. It's a dangerous posting. Swiss authorities uh, were har uh, very strict with spies, very harsh with them, deport them. And Ursula, being uh, you know a Jewish Soviet spy, that she wouldn't have lasted too long. Uh, she, if... Absolutely, Gestapo would pretty much yeah get her there. Down, they were down. They were down on Jew Jewish Soviet. They're a bit spies, down on Jewish Soviet spies, weren't they? Ideal <laughs> the Nazis. Yeah, people. yeah. She was told to travel to Switzerland via Britain. Right. where she could swing by and visit her family, who she hasn't seen. You know, she's been away in China and yeah. wherever all this time. So she gets to go and visit her family. She's told to then go to Geneva, set up an illegal radio transmitter receiver and make contact with the pre-existing Soviet intelligence networks that are there. Like you said, loads of spies, riddled with spies in, in neutral Switzerland. So she suggested that as she was travelling via Britain to visit her family, that might be quite a good opportunity to recruit some agents of her own to start running in Switzerland and of course the best starting point if you want to recruit British communist sympathizers might be to look at those people who'd just come back from fighting for the international brigade in Spain oh I know a podcast about that I know a podcast about that so do listen to that uh that's Spanish civil war fit. but um, um yeah all these Ill um illegal radio transmitters and sort of um um broadcasting that that was the uh, the heroic and sort of slightly more challenging version of doing podcasts, wasn't it? Really, they were, they were <laughs> slightly more heroic. They weren't, uh, they weren't all sitting around with their radio transmitters, going, "So, fellow comedian, what's your favourite dinner?" <laughs> no, I mean, I mean, the thing is, well, as a little aside, you know, she's building these things, but they're—it's not just a case of, 
you know, radio transmitters weren't a little thing. You yeah, have on, on your laptop. You know, yeah. On your laptop. She was having to get climb onto the roof at night and build aerials yeah. and then take it back down again in the morning so it's not to be... It was incredibly dangerous. And obviously, people could detect where radio signals were coming from. So she would have to dismantle and rebuild them all the time to avoid being caught. Just to say to fellow comedians, what's your favourite dinner? Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Um, um, yeah, you know, it, it was yeah, no, it was, it was incredibly challenging, dangerous and challenging work. Technically yeah. challenging, yeah, you know, yeah. um, but very dangerous. She'd ever been caught, yeah, so dangerous. She, but she's having a, she's in a nice place. She's in a picture postcard a Swiss chalet in the mountains overlooking Lake Geneva. Yeah, Rudy Hamburger. I'm going to always say his surname because it's funnier. Uh, and Ursula finally realised that their marriage wasn't really working. Poor out. Rudy. I'm not sure what the giveaway was. Putting him in danger all the time. Her affair with a Russian handler, having a baby by her co-agent. These are little telltale signs. Little, 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 yeah. little, little, little things that came up in therapy. Um, <laughs> so uh, he went off to Paris to receive some more training as a Soviet officer. Uh, and then his uh, Moscow handlers sent him back off to China. God, it's like one thing they the do. Other. So Rudy goes back off to China. Yep. Um, via, I think he goes via Paris. Yeah, it's a bit more training. So he's now a fully fledged, Soviet spy in his own right. He's not just, you know, helping Ursula. Um, so Ursula's in Switzerland um, yep. and she moves in her old nanny. Now, there, there was a family nanny who was known as Olo, a, a German woman, older German woman. And she'd been Ursula's nanny when she was a baby. So she was getting on a bit by now, Olo. And, um, but she knew the family really well. And when they fled, obviously yep. they fled to Britain, but she had a German passport, so she couldn't go with the family. Right. So she went with Ursula. And looked after Ursula's two children she's got now. She's got baby Michael, Rudy's son, and then she's got baby Nina. And, um, you know, she has this nanny so she could get on with being a sort of working spy mother. Um, And in the meantime, Ursula's recruited this uh, couple of English agents as well. Um, Alexander Foote is one and later another called Len Burton. Okay. Um, he's got a slightly odd spelling of his name, Burton, B-E-U-R-T-O-N, because he actually, I think his father was French, I believe, okay. something like Burton. that. But Burton. But okay. Burton. Len Burton. 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 Um, Burton yeah. He was actually Leon, I think was his name, but he was known as Len. So, right. you know, very anglicised. He was brought up in England. They, they'd both fought in the International Brigade and were, um, Len probably more so a sort of proper grassroots committee communist, Alexander Foote. Yeah. Uh, I got the sense from read from the book that Alexander Foote was just a bit more up for a bit of um, excitement in his life, you know. I see. Were, I'm not sure his political ideals were quite as pure as the others, but um, to, well, I mean, wanted, they, they still just, were. You know, he was quite just wanted a side to side to fight on. I think he just didn't want to, you know, work in a. Yeah. I think he was from a farming family, and that didn't wasn't really what he wanted to do. But anyway, um, so Ursula sends Foote, Alexander Foote, into Germany. So we're in the 30s. Sort of late 30s. So Hitler's in power. Hitler's in power. So she sends him into Germany um, with the idea being that he would be able to mix with German citizens, Nazis potentially, and and just get information. Because at this point, Britons can go to Germany still on a tourist visa. They're not at war. You know, there's still peace. And um, he might be able to get information about uh, military installation, you know, anything really that he could glean. Now, while he's over there, so he goes to Munich. He doesn't really know anything about Germany. So first of all, she sends him to a library to sort of learn all about Munich. And he goes there and he meets this university student who is also an SS officer who starts teaching him German. And through this SS officer, he's happily getting introduced to other Nazis. So he's getting quite a lot of information. 
Then one day, uh, he'd dine out at restaurants quite a lot. And one day he took himself to this restaurant called Osteria Bavaria. And he discovered while he was there that this is a place where a certain Adolf Hitler liked to hang out. It was Hitler's favourite restaurant. And he would okay. dine there frequently. And the Führer, the Führer of the The Führer Germany. himself, yeah, wow. in Munich. And, and, you know, his security detail wasn't quite as high as you'd expect, I think, because it was just his restaurant where it was just known he goes there. And he was, I don't he used know, to hang out wasn't... long before uh, he was uh, the uh, leader of Germany. He was in Munich a lot, so maybe he felt comfortable yeah, there. Exactly. So obviously he, uh, Foot, Alexander Foot, mentions this to Ursula, you know, by the way, yeah. <laughs> just had oh, dinner in this restaurant and you'll never guess who was at the next table. So <laughs> Ursula immediately reports this to Moscow and they uh, wheels are in motion now for an actual assassination plot. So Ursula's behind a plot to kill Hitler. Ursula is behind a plot to kill Hitler. Oh, right. Yes. Yeah. So they, they plan, am I, if I'm... Um... Got this right. They plan to do it with a bomb in a briefcase in the restaurant. So, but Hitler doesn't just sit out at the table in the middle of everyone else trying to catch the no. waiter's eye, does he? No, he's in no. a private room. Yeah. Uh, um, but apparently, very thin partition walls. Yeah. So, if you put a if you put a bomb propped up against the thin partition walls, um, that should do it. Yeah. And they came really close to it. They were totally going to do it. And what happened? Why didn't they do it? Well. They would have got away with it if it wasn't for that pesky Molotov-Ribbentrop pact. That was the original. Happened. That was the original draft of Scooby Doo. Uh, Scooby Doo. It was. We would have got it away with it if it hadn't been for that pesky Molotov-Ribbentrop. It, it is amazing pact. to think, though, isn't it? That that just if that pack, if that meeting hadn't happened. Well, there's so many. Obviously, what if, what if, butterfly wings yeah. and all of that. But they were all good to go with this, and it's a plot that actually had a good chance of working. Wow. Um, you know, and I mean, we talked about German assassination attempts in our. Yeah. episode on German resistance, you know, and there were yeah. many. But just weeks before it was due to actually happen, they were putting all the things in place for it to happen. But Molotov and Ribbentrop announced the no aggression pact between Soviet Russia and Germany. She, Ursula, gets a message from Moscow saying to abort the plan immediately. Wow. So this is 1939, I guess. Yeah. Now, this is a real mo This is probably the first massive crisis of conscience for Ursula. Because... For her whole life, she's fought fascism. Like, that's yeah. the enemy. The, from the brown shirts when she was on that march on the May Day parade yeah. against, you know, she wasn't just a communist, remember, she was a Jewish communist. And now the cause that she's been following, that she's, you know, yeah. risked her family, her own life for, suddenly uh, that Moscow line is alliance in alliance with the very Nazis that she's been yeah, fighting. Yeah. So it's the first time she really has questions about her allegiance to the Soviets. I think this was a crisis of confidence for all communists at the time yeah. because their, all their propaganda that they had been receiving was anti-Nazi, anti-Nazi, uh, rightly so. And then suddenly in 1939 with this pact, it turned it all on its head and it's like, no, no, we're in, we're in the same side as the Nazis and we're carving up Finland and taking bits of Poland. Suddenly they were like the, the Daily Worker and all the far left in Britain were doing the same thing, sort of justifying yeah. Stalin's decision. Because well, you're suddenly in this position, aren't you, where your ideology yeah. hasn't changed, you're, but the history's just pivoted around you. Yeah, and they, so they were, you know, with their war looking imminent, suddenly they were against mm. war with the Nazis, having been in favour of war with the Nazis. Yeah. Uh, you know, this, uh, and, 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 the, and in the beginning of the war, they were against mm. war. So sort of lots of communists were, um, were sort of detained in Britain. Yeah. But the doubt was short-lived because, of course, uh, Hitler eventually invades the Soviet Union 
Um, Operation Barbarossa is launched in uh, 1941, breaking the pact. And I got the wrong year there. Sorry. You did, that's all right. I just uh, yeah. <laughs> I wasn't going to draw attention to it. Uh, My bad. What sort of man corrects women in <laughs> details of World War Two? I was writing this at quarter to four in the morning. I'll that's just right. remind everyone of that again. <laughs> yeah, so, you know, with uh, Hitler breaking the pact, um, and that puts Ursula back on the right side of history again for a bit anyway. For a bit, yeah. In 1940, go back yep. a little bit, yep. Ursula has now divorced Rudy. Poor Rudy. Oh, He's oh, Rudy in Hamburger. China, of course. <laughs> so he couldn't contest his divorce. He didn't even know it was happening. They did it completely behind his back. She wow. made up some lies about adultery. <laughs> Poor oh, Rudy. God, <laughs> Poor Rudy. Um, and so she can marry Len Burton, the other one of these uh, ex-International Brigade English guys. And it, originally it was a marriage of convenience. She was going to marry Alexander Foote at first. And okay. Alexander Foote could see that there was a little something between her and Len. So he was like, well, if there's going to be a marriage of convenience, why don't you marry the one you actually fancy rather okay. than me? <laughs> you know? Because they did actually have feelings for each other, her and Len. And, and they would stay married. We'll yeah. see. They, they did stay together. Um, but the marriage was also useful because it meant that she could get a British passport. Obviously, her German passport is not much use to her now. She's in Switzerland. No, no. Um, so that gets surrendered and she's essentially stateless really um so she can get a british passport now which means as far as moscow is concerned that she can go to england yes which is you know an important move at this time um there's one person who wasn't very happy about the thought that of her marrying len and moving to england and it's probably the nearest ursula got to being found out that's got to be the nanny no one was yep. thinking about their staff, were they? They were like, yep. no, all this important global affairs. But the nanny loved the babies. And yep. so um, Olo, who Ursula had known her whole life, knew about Ursula's activities, of course, and but was a trusted confidant. Yeah. But when she thought that she might go to England, it devastated her. Uh, yeah. Olo was a German citizen. She wouldn't be able to go with her. And uh, she was incredibly close to Ursula's children, especially baby Nina. She even suggested Ursula take Michael and leave Nina with her. So Olo um, uh, tried but failed to give uh, Ursula up. It was a terrible time. And Len and Ursula even discussed where they might have to have a nanny killed, which is yeah. some discussions that Jackie and I have had. You know. <laughs> All the time. It happens <laughs> to every family. <laughs> it but didn't come to that. Again, she, she was somebody that, that she was incredibly close to her whole life. They did come up against each other because obviously yeah. Ursula was a, a fiery child, I think it's fair to say. And they did have these <laughs> yes. sort of um, battles, you know. But um, it was a really difficult time for Ursula and for Olo, who eventually, um, I can't remember exactly what happened to her. It's in the book. But she, you know, she didn't grasp her up. You know, she did try to. And it, in fact, there was one point in Switzerland where it was only a language barrier, I think, God. that meant that she failed to, to actually... Um, yeah, grasp her up properly. Um, so, so Ursula and Len and their two children, they do move to England. Um, yeah. And they... so just, let me just uh, quiz you on that, Angela. So yeah. uh, Ursula's German, you know, she's from uh, uh, Prussia. Do they just mm. say, oh, we're well, married to an Englishman? This is the middle of the World War Two. You know, yeah. they just go, yeah, come on in. Or they go, oh, we're a Soviet spy. Come on in. Well, or... I think so. Because remember, she's Jewish. And at that right. point, Okay. You know, it's not like there weren't a lot of right. German Jewish exiles in Britain at the time. Most of them were locked up um, in the Isle of Man, though, weren't they? Well, a lot of them were at the beginning of the war. I think by yeah. this point, this is later on in the war. Right. So I think by this point, yeah. people have been released. Possibly it should have been obvious to British intelligence yeah. that it might have been a bit suspect. But, you know, she wasn't the only person 
Oh, she's all right. She's Doing got a lovely that. hobby. Look at her building and also her own shed. A, you know, she's, she's a mum with great, two kids. She's got a great you know, big aerial on top of the garden shed. Exactly, exactly. It's all fine. They set up home in the rather charming village of Great Rollwright in the Oxfordshire countryside, right in the Cotswolds. Beautiful. Um, you know, they set up Ursula's radio transmitter receiver in the outside loo. It's very. Do. Very idyllic. Um, and, and during this time, and again, it's more in the book, and, but they, they like have lodgers and everything. They really... They embrace the whole thing. Embrace the whole thing. And these lodgers come into their house and, and they are a bit suspicious that there's something a bit odd going on, but no one ever, <laughs> ever yeah. grasses them up. You know, they just get away with so much. Well, it's these, incredible, these really. polite English neighbours keep themselves to themselves in the, yeah. uh, in the uh, Oxfordshire countryside. Uh, Ursula was just another... European exile from fascism, cycling around the village, being a busy mum. I don't suppose their first thought was, oh, she's probably a Soviet spy, that lady does the flowers in the church, you know. Exactly. <laughs> and, and she, you know, her kids went to the local schools, Her, she was involved in society. And it was a, a difficult time for her because she was trying to portray this, you know, she was being, she wasn't just trying to portray, she was being a wife and mother and spy. So she right. was, you know... Um, would have to go for these like naps in the afternoon. Her kids say she was always napping in the afternoon. It's weird because obviously they didn't know what was going on. Her own children didn't know what was going on. But she was up all night sending messages wow. to to Moscow. You know, it's, it's incredible what she managed. Yeah. Talk about work life balance for a working yeah. mother. Jesus Christ. You're like. <laughs> I mean, the the uh, International Women's Day um, adverts would be you can have it all. You're a girl boss who. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Uh, you, you go, know. girl. <laughs> It is, and that's why, you know, whatever, without making judgments on her ideology yeah. or what she did, you can't yeah. deny that she was an incredible woman. Yeah, yeah. You know. Um, I know. I mean, that's, that, in, 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 and, and really in a period of history when sort of the world could go one way or the other. Absolutely. Like, yeah. Absolutely. It's very, you know, easy to think now, oh, Soviet spy bad. But yeah. at this point point in time she is fighting fascism which we all you know that were that, yeah so were, she's probably doing point. it by leaking information about the british uh the yeah. allies so it's a very complex alliance well that, it, wasn't it, it is a complex alliance obviously because you've got now you've got yeah. uh russia us and uk yeah in alliance effectively against the axis powers yeah but it's impossible really to know what affect exactly the information that Ursula handed to the Soviets would have on the war or the period after the war. Because Stalin himself, he was notoriously actually suspicious of spies. Yeah. And he often ignored intelligence um, yeah. that he was handed for fear of double agents or propaganda or whatever. Yeah. Um, and in fact, you know, he very famously ignored a lot of the information that was presented by the Cambridge spies, by Kim Philby. That yeah. Kim Philby passed over so much information, but a lot of it just ended up in the bin because... Yeah. As far as Stalin was concerned and the people around, it was too good, this information. So it must yeah. be, yeah. It must well, be he, fake. Well, he also didn't uh, listen to the uh, intelligence information that Hitler was going to launch an attack on him. He, it, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. So the intelligence he was getting, he was largely ignoring. So, yeah. you know, a lot of the work that Sonia and her like would have done was, was kind of futile, really, because, wow. you know, whether it had an actual, yeah. because the leadership wasn't necessarily using that information for... Yeah, or trusting uh, it. There's strategy yeah. or trusting it. Yeah, so um, there's kind of things we do know that are yeah. to her hand in that made a difference to the Soviets. Is that right? That's true. That's right. So, the, the you know, again, there's no way of really quantifying now exactly 
how she changed the course of history. But there's sort of two examples um, that are quite interesting, I think. So in March, uh, around March, I think 1945, the US intelligence services carry out something called Operation Hammer. Right. And this is um, an operation to parachute some German anti-fascists that have been in exile back into Germany. And indirectly, Ursula is approached to recruit suitable candidates. Now, she never had direct contact with the US agents. So right. they weren't dealing with her directly. There were go-betweens, there were middlemen. Because after all, she is German and left-wing. Yeah. They're not going to deal with her directly. Um, but what she does do is she recruits the people for this mission. But what she recruits is actual German Soviet agents. So oh, wow. the US right. end up bringing <laughs> into their sort of domain, fold, yeah. if you like, yeah, to their yeah. domain, these German Soviet agents. Um, yes. and Unbeknownst them... to them. Some of the Americans were suspicious, weren't they? I think yeah. they, some of them thought they were just trade unionists, not actual yeah. communist spies. So, of course, these guys were able to hand over US secrets to the Soviets, one of which was a fancy new bit of kit that we uh, now know as the walkie-talkie. Right. Uh, it was uh, called the Joan Eleanor back then, named after the two girlfriends of the inventors. Ah, And that reminds me, the Joan, Joan Eleanor, Eleanor, please. It's not, the walkie-talkie's um, a better name, isn't it? It is, yeah. And it was, I mean, you know, walkie-talkie to us doesn't seem very much, but it was a really important bit of technology at the time that the Russians yeah. didn't have. Because what it meant, if you had a walkie-talkie, it meant agents on the ground could talk to people in aircraft in real time. That's invaluable. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Um, and uh, and then uh, there's the issue of, a uh, uh, little issue of a very big bomb. Tell us yes. about that. Yes. Now, this is where we can say that Sonia pretty much had a direct hand in uh, the, the course of history here, I think. So, you listeners, you might have heard of a man called Klaus Fuchs. And I said Fuchs, F-U-C-H-S, Fuchs. Stop giggling at the back. Fuchs, Klaus Fuchs. Um, very famous. Um, he was a German exile in Britain. He had, in fact, been interred at the beginning of the war and then was um, released. Um and he was a scientist, a very intelligent scientist. And so he was recruited into what was called the Tube Alloys Programme. It's a punk group. Which... It's a punk group, wasn't it? It was. Oh, gentlemen, the <laughs> Tube Alloys. <laughs> he was on base. No. Um, <laughs> it was the um, British Atomic Weapons Programme. That was right. what it was called, the Tube Alloys Programme. And Fuchs, um, so he was working with the British scientists to develop an atomic weapon. Yep. Now, he genuinely believed at the time and again yeah. it's all very easy to look back at this but yeah. Fuchs believed that it wasn't fair that the US and UK were sharing this information about the development of this devastating new weapon and not sharing it with the Soviets who were their allies at the right. time right so it's a pretty naive way of thinking but right. it's one that he and Ursula believed were right and and that you know as allies they should be sharing information between all the powers not just the select two you know so ursula actually ends up running several atomic spies in britain there was fuchs himself she was running him she also ran you might have heard of melita norwood um there's i think there's a book is it the spy that came out of the co-op or something it's called something like that a story okay. about melita Norwood. but she worked she was basically a, a a sort of secretary within that institution and um was passing Documents. Yeah, I mean, it's amazing that um, the Germans had no active spies in Britain during the Second World War. They were all captured or closed down or uh, arrested at landing. Yet the Soviets seem to have loads of spies in Britain and seem to be um, 
very effective. Fuchs gave the yeah. Soviets around five, 570 documents containing yeah. secrets on how to develop a nuclear weapon. And, and many of them so complicated, they couldn't be coded. Um, yeah. Ursula would put them in a dead drop site, uh, a hollow tree just outside the village. That's that when, when I was that's growing fun. up, that's where all the porn mags always were. A yeah. Hollow tree. <laughs> um, yeah. Underneath the copies of, you know, Razzle and, uh, and Nave. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and they'd be picked up by a Soviet diplomat working under diplomatic cover in, in London. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, it's so crazy thing is it's tiny, sleepy little village. Yeah. Is where the blueprints for making a nuclear bomb were being Incredible. handed over to the Russians. So Fuchs eventually gets moved to the Manhattan Project in the US. And so Ursula hands him to an agent over there. Um, he ends up at Los Alamos and involved with the whole project. And he continues to supply information about all of it um, to the Soviets. On his return to the UK, he was investigated by MI5, but it's thought that Kim Philby himself might have tipped him off, him right. and Ursula, so that they stopped yeah. communicating at, at that point when MI5 were getting a bit close. Um, now, Klaus Fuchs eventually confesses in 1950, um, and there is a trial, and um, I can't remember exactly what happens to him, but you know he does confess to having passed on all these secrets. And I think it's really interesting because it's sort of almost an interesting thought experiment here, isn't there? Because the Soviets would almost certainly have developed an atomic weapon themselves. They had yes. excellent scientists. They were on it, you know. But how much longer it would have taken them, we don't know. And there's after America bombed Hiroshima, yeah. there was definitely talk in America about doing the same to Russia. Oh, right, absolutely. About, yeah, yeah. So, you know, had Russia not had that weapon developed in time, yeah. the US could have done to Russia what they did to Hiroshima. And then would we be, you know, in a world where there is just one nuclear superpower? You know, yeah. this yeah. sort of America complete control. Absolutely. Terrifying. Uh, you know, I mean, it's terrifying a terrifying thought. thought. I mean, the terrifying thought to grow up in with two nuclear superpowers or the, or more that, mm. as it's proliferated during our lifetime. But yeah, yeah, if there'd only been one, it would have been like the Death Star, wouldn't it? This one power could destroy any other. Exactly, because you had this sort of, um, you know, the way they saw it, Ursula and Fuchs, is that they enabled what we yeah. now know as mutually assured destruction, right? Yes. Which enabled yeah. this sort of situation where the... the, the I suppose, allowed for peace for quite well, a long time. Well, I think time. Uh, uh, defenders of nuclear weapons would say so. I would argue yeah. that uh, the risk of eventual nuclear war is too great to justify having nuclear weapons at all and that countries like Britain would do well to get rid of theirs. Um, but um, that's a whole other... That's a whole other thing. Yeah. And, and it's, but, you know, and I'm just saying what their justification for their yeah, actions were. Yeah. And I do find it it is interesting because, you know... Obviously, again, butterfly wings and all of yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, to, amazing. to think how the world would be different if they hadn't done that, maybe. And, and amazing, really, that throughout all of this, the 30s and the Second World War, and moving all over from continent to continent, Ursula never got betrayed or caught, uh, which yeah. is usually the fate of most spies. Yeah, absolutely. She was either, John, incredibly lucky, um, and, yeah. and, you know, that, that sort of cover of her motherhood and whatever just served her throughout her life 
she or did she have a little bit of help from MI5? There are suggestions that um, Roger Hollis, who was the head of MI5, was a Soviet spy who had yes. been recruited during his time in China. Um, and so he was able to deflect any attention from Ursula. Ben McIntyre thinks that's not the case. He thinks that what Roger Hollis was actually is just massively incompetent. <laughs> I like that theory. Um, but who, who really knows? There's a lot of people who believe that Roger Hollis was a spy. Yeah, a, the, he's long gone now. We'll never know, probably. Um, the Spy but, Catcher book, it's all, it's all about that, isn't it? The, that yeah. That boring book that they tried to suppress in the, uh, what, it must be 80s now. But, 80s, um, yeah, it was, yeah. Yeah. And, and I, I like the incompetence theory. I, that rings true for me. How come? So if you've ever worked in any sort of bureaucratic, yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah. And also remember, so the, the book does talk about. There's one particular intelligence officer, a female intelligence officer, officer called Millicent Baggett, which again, right. great name, another great name. Um, and you can almost imagine what Millicent, Ms. Millicent Baggett, looked like, can't you? You can just <laughs> see it. Um, now she seemed to be at times pretty hot on Ursula's trail. She was very suspicious of Ursula, and she. But she gets told to back off, right? right? Or then someone else comes in and takes over the case. Now, this could be because there was someone on the inside protecting Ursula. Yeah. Or it could be that Melissa Baggett's a female intelligence officer claiming that a housewife is a prolific Soviet spy and she just simply wasn't taken seriously. That sounds more likely to me. Yeah. That you does, know? Yeah. yeah. I, think, that just I, think, like, I think that theory is like, oh, don't be a ridiculous woman. Uh, yeah, exactly. Not, yeah. Calm down, dear. Yeah, calm I'll down. You're being hysterical. Here. Exactly. Exactly. So, so yeah. what happened to Ursula? So the day the hero before, of our story. yeah, the day before the trial of Carl Fuchs starts in 1950, yeah. um, Ursula decides to leave because she that that it's she's going to be uncovered at yeah. that point, right? And sure enough, later on, Carl Fuchs does name her as the agent that he was handing stuff to. But by that time, Ursula had gone, and um, for the first time in 20 years, she goes back to Berlin because, of course, now um, we have. By this point, the German Democratic Republic, East Germany, is a state, uh, a communist state. Yep. Um, so she is able to go back to her hometown, to East Berlin, um, and live out the rest of her life in a communist state. Right. Um, which is sort of what she'd been fighting for. So at the time, Michael, her oldest son, was actually at Aberdeen University. Um, but he joined her later. Her other two children, because by this point she'd also had a baby with her husband Len. Yeah. Um, they she fled with them, and Len joined her later. I think Len was in the RAF at this point, and so he had okay. to wait. But and I think then he had some broken leg or something. But eventually, anyway, he also joined her in the GDR, and that's the where East Germany, they East Germany, that is, isn't it? In yeah. East Germany, yeah. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah, yeah, the German Democratic Republic. Not very democratic. Um, and she wrote her yeah. memoirs, didn't she? She did. She did. So she's in um, East Germany and where she was able to sort of, um, yeah, just exist. Put it all really. down. Um, and, and put it all down. So, yeah. Stasi, I imagine, are fairly nervous about this. Uh, redacted <laughs> huge swathes of it. They but, uh, of course, being the meticulous bureaucrats that they were, they kept the original in their archives. So yeah. luckily, Ben McIntyre is able to access all that stuff and That's share right. it with us now. Yeah, yeah. They They put out a version of her memoirs that was, you know, very basic in, I think, in the 50s, um, later in the 50s, but obviously with a lot of the information Redacted, taken out. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Ursula had changed her name by this point to Ruth Werner, and okay. she became famous uh, not as a spy, but for writing children's books, a sort of anti-Enid Blyton, the communist Enid Blyton. That's a communist Enid Blyton. Come on, come on, Timmy. Come on, Timmy, let's go down to the village and, uh, <laughs> yeah. and uh, set up a radio station and send nuclear secrets to the Soviets. Exactly. Oh, and exactly. have some ginger beer. Exactly. <laughs> and um, 
her, her children didn't actually find out about her espionage until they were in middle age. That's really. amazing. So that's pretty impressive that she managed to keep that under there. It wrap. was. It was very upsetting for her children. It's quite. Could you imagine that finding out sort of now? You know that your parents yeah. had been Spies, doing yeah. all that. And and I know her eldest son Michael um, in an interview said that because um, he'd been married and divorced several times. I think uh, yeah. Michael and and said you know maybe I just find it difficult to trust people. Oh. Um, you know. So I think it had her activities had a long reaching effect on. Yeah. her family she never really wavered from her faith in socialism she could accept that there was um an ugly face of it i've put snuggly that's snuggly snuggly socialism um, that's, a, that's another brand of socialism I've seen. snug, she could snug socialism and and in fact when the wall came down in in berlin she immediately she was backing egon krentz who was the new right. east german leader after the war came down which obviously didn't last very long until then it all collapsed and, and yeah. reunification but she was she was a sort of supporter really of the gdr to the end but she also yeah. realized that there was you know a way to or there should be a way to do communism that hadn't been done if you see yes I, I mean i think uh, there was a there was a the uh uh, a section of opinion that believed that when the war came down, that was the annexation of East Germany by the West Absolutely. Uh, and felt very uh, saddened and betrayed by the way that history played out there. I mean, obviously, this wasn't a majority opinion, but this was the opinion of you know those who had faith in the idea of East German socialism or Soviet socialism, yeah. as and it was very called. Difficult, I suppose, for somebody like Ursula, who had been through what she's been through and done what she's done to let go of that yeah absolutely you know, to give your whole uh, life to go your whole life was a mistake you know well, was um, it? I yeah maybe mistake's too hard a word she was on the right side in the second world war but just, just happened to be you know um, it, like you said the, the history moved around her her absolutely. values didn't really change but history yeah. moved around her and she went from being the right side to very the yes. side. and and um, socialism was betrayed by stalin just as much as national socialism was nothing to do with socialism anyway um absolutely thank you for coming absolutely. to my my lecture <laughs> thanks for thank your you. TED talk. Yeah, if you'd like to buy a paper <laughs> we are outside brick lane market every saturday morning socialist worker <laughs> um, so yeah. so she lives to 93 which wow Pretty she dies age. in the year 2000 so she literally sees you know the fall of communism she sees the fall yeah. of soviet union she see, so she's gone right through, like, as we said, the whole... And, and 93 is a pretty good age for a spy. That's amazing, yeah. She it's sees not the, a life expectancy she, of She gets to see the Millennium Dome. That's the main thing. Oh, phew, thank goodness. Um, and <laughs> poor I think Rudy, just, poor Rudy. Just to finish, I've just got to say a word about poor Rudy. So, like I say, a whole story in itself, much too detailed to go into, but... He, he it turned out he wasn't a great spy okay. but he was a loyal one and he tried his best okay. uh, but sadly um well sadly depending how you look at it i suppose yeah but he was captured when he was in china he spent time in prison in china which as you can imagine not a great experience not great. Nope. he got malaria he suffered malnutrition eventually um he was released and he was sent by moscow to iran um, so he was uh, working as a as a Soviet agent in Iran for a while. He eventually was captured by the British, but he was delivered to the Soviet embassy. So you'd think, phew, great. Yeah. Return to Moscow, at which point he's like, okay, I'm going to be, you know, the, yeah, greeted as a life. sort of, yeah, given a nice quiet life now. But instead of receiving asylum when he got to Moscow, for some reason, he was sent to the labor camps, oh, no. um, to the Gulag. And he was sent to various different camps throughout the end of the war, 
Uh, and he was still in Labour camps, John, in 1952. Oh, my God. Um... When he was then placed in internal exile in Russia, so he was released from the labor camps, but was still in internal exile in Russia. Um, he eventually they allowed him to travel to the German De Democratic Republic in 1955. Wow! So, poor. so there was sort of what's that, 13 years or something, yeah, maybe yeah. more, of him being imprisoned, sent to labor camps, and yeah. utterly broken. Well, I bet he was, um, yeah, and and uh, and. Probably no contact with uh, with Ursula, I suppose. No, or his son. Yeah, um, yeah. During all that time, you know, they didn't really know what happened with him. Ursula, yeah. when her son Michael was younger, kept saying how his father was coming back. You know, and you hear Michael yeah, say yeah. in interviews that he just kept waiting and his father never came. Yeah. You know, and it yeah. wasn't till so Michael would have been in his twenties, thirties, I think, when yeah, when uh, his father finally returned. So uh, an, ep an an epic tale. Of a, mm. uh, of a small player in the 20th century, but uh, someone who was in every continent and on every uh, front, uh, see, trying to apply her sort of political philosophy to the crazy changing world all around her. It's, it should be a movie. Absolutely. It really story. should. I, I'm sure it will be one day. Yeah. I mean, this book only came out in 2020. Yes. So surely it will eventually be a film. But I, yes. I, it is fascinating. And, and you know, do get the book by Ben McIntyre. It's called Agent Sonia because the, he just writes such an accessible way about yeah, you know the, these people. I, and, and he, without that sort of moral judgment on yeah. her, really, you know, and we, people, what I like is that when we say this, people do buy the books and tell us. So we get people on Twitter yeah. going, I bought the book and ordered it. And it's right. like, oh, great. We're helping these authors as well as, well, they don't need any help from us. But well, did uh, you see um, last week? So after yeah. last week, a couple of weeks ago, uh, when we did the episode on Maud West, yeah. and um, quite a few people have said, you know, they're going to buy the book, which is a great book. And then Susanna Stapleton herself listened to the episode, who'd written the book. Yeah, that's great. And thank goodness she, you know, she tweeted she us and said how much she liked it. And yeah. that, that meant a lot to us. Cause it's like, oh, good, because, you know, we don't want authors to think we're just ripping off their... <laughs> no, no, we want to sort of uh, discuss the work. The yeah, exactly. Yeah. And uh, I encourage people to buy the books. And it's great when an actual author gets in touch. So yeah. uh, thank you, Ben McIntyre. Thank you, uh, Ms. Stapleton. Susanna Stapleton. Yes. Yeah, and all the uh, other authors whose books we've been um, using for research, and um, exactly. but it's better than uh, but it's better than just going on Wikipedia. So uh, uh, that's all. Thank you, Angela, for educating me about Ursula. I didn't know anything about her until you uh, picked this as a subject. We'll be back next week with another we three will. episode of uh, We Are History. Uh, I've got a little uh, a Cold War idea up my sleeve I'd like Ooh, to uh, maybe we'll do. about that. And I've got another Cold War one coming, <laughs> oh my God. John. You'll be surprised here, but I've read a, a brilliant book recently and... It would be a shame not to do an All episode right. on it. So, so, we'll... so we're going to we're going to we're going to we're going to be quite bit... cold while heavy. <laughs> That's <laughs> right. I think I, I think people will forgive us. People Thank you it. for listening, for everyone. Give us Don't give us forget, give us yeah. four and a half stars or even five five, 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 five stars. Uh, and um, uh, we're not asking for a buy a coffee or anything like that. We just want for a nice review. Yeah, we, we we do we do love doing this, and we don't you know it does take a lot of time. Oh, and, till four um, in the morning. She was four in the morning. I was up this morning. Um, you know, and like we don't do the patreon thing or anything at the moment maybe yeah. one day um big, but you know it, what, what does help us is to get the uh, word out there and and to get a bit more you know yeah. people listen so if you could go on to apple Podcasts and give us a five-star review that really helps i know it's awful to ask and it's begging but you know we're not begging for money we're begging for two minutes of your time to write that little thing for us and um and, and just to you know if you tweet yeah. about us tell your friends about us whatever if you if you're yeah. enjoying it spread the word because it that's how it works that's how it works 
See you next Yay. week, guys. See you next time. I wave then, John, as if they can see me. I am losing my mind. See you next time, guys. Bye.